0: And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. We are back in the studio. And we are live. And it is, yes, May the 4th. I got it. I know. Welcome, everybody. We are live from the Bunker. My name is Jason Hutt. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. Happy to have all of you with us. Those of you who are with us live, give a shout out to everybody who listens to this program as a podcast. We've got listeners all over the world, including most of Europe, Russia, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Good to have all of you with us. I do invite you to check out the live video if you are a podcast listener. We're available on all the different podcast platforms. If you're not with us live, you can leave a comment. You can send us an email live from the bunker at softraftforme.com. Join our Discord server. There's all sorts of different ways you can get a hold of us. And we have 69 days left on our copyright strike, assuming that it doesn't lift either today or tomorrow. So there is that. Because we filed our counterclaim on Thursday the 21st and they said 10 business days which is either today or tomorrow so hopefully that lifts and we'll be back to back to square so anyway there's there is that now today i know it's may the 4th we're not talking star wars we're going to do the ranker pit tonight that'll be the star wars chat today however uh, we have and i am wearing i am wearing my t-shirt uh, uh, <laughs> to commemorate the day uh, because we have as our guest today somebody that we were going to have as our guest last week and of course OBS just freezes on me why did it do that is everything going are we are we there we go all right there it is <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, it's these are the Stone Martin Weasels decide they want to interfere, and and we go, uh, we go kind of where it goes. So anyway, Monty Schultz joins us today. He is the son of cartoonist uh, Charles M. Schultz. We were supposed to have him on the schedule last week, and there were some internet connection issues and stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna try again today and see what happens because I it looks like, it looks like we're having some. Well, it looks like we're having some buffering issues here. So, anyway, all right, um, Monty, welcome to the show. I'm glad we hey were too. able to finally have this, uh, have the connection there. So, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Here we Stay go. In the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So the book uh, came out in August. It's called Metropolis. It is uh, uh, described as a coming of age novel, uh, and it also is. Dystopian fiction and uh, all sorts of stuff. So let's let's give us a, a a short reader's digest pre-see of what this book is about.
1: Um, okay, it's about a college senior, Julian Bream, at uh, Regency College in a fictional republic in the days of eugenics and eugenics war. So um, my character Julian is grown up in a world that is plagued by um, eugenics war, the death of millions of people. In the book, though, he meets a bohemian revolutionary with an eight-year-old daughter who introduces him to some of this world that he hasn't really been aware of. He knows there's a war. He knows about eugenics, doesn't necessarily believe in it, but he doesn't know the extent to which uh, the republic he lives in has fallen into such a degenerate state. Yeah. So it's an unusual novel in that it is yes as you say a dystopian novel but a, a, a dystopian novel about eugenics which is turns out to be very rare I read my publisher and I never could find another book that's like this so he and my agent both said it was the most uh, original novel I'd ever read in this so uh, I, I didn't think about that when I was writing it I didn't know there weren't any other books like this but but
0: well, you've, read been, it out. you've been working so, it's on
1: fun to read college novel uh, coming of age.
0: I was going to say you've been working on this for quite a while. You even you even walked away from it for a while and then came back to it. Uh, is that right? Well, Do I have that
1: right? Yeah, working on it is
0: it is yeah working on
1: it is sort of flattering. I I I found my old iBook and I found the original file which was from June eleventh two thousand one and then the most recent save file I have on my computer that I'm working on right now showed from 2003. I didn't work on it at all between 2003 and 2019, so 16 years went by, Um, because I just couldn't figure out how my character Julian could be studying the Greeks and the Romans in a fictional republic, and I couldn't figure out what the geography of the place was, and then in the spring of 2019, I followed uh, Ray Bradbury's... uh, uh, axiom, which is that uh, wh- how is this so? Because I say it's so. Okay, right. and, uh, um, and, then I, um, and then I figured out that the geography is it's France, but in a different world. It's uh, as though a friend of mine from UC Santa Barbara said it's like history bifurcated 1500 years ago and created this republic. Yeah. So well, that's why a lot of it seems familiar but some of it isn't. So there's no mention of France, but there is just, it's just where it would be. When they talk about, in this book, the Southern Sea, they're referring to what we know as the Mediterranean. And uh, the, the, the metropolis in the book, I guess, would be Paris, but it's not Paris. And the Holy River Livorna is the Seine, but it's not the Seine. Right. And uh, eastern the eastern provinces would be Germany and Eastern Europe and like that. So anyhow, that's what the book is, is, is like. It's, it's sort of multiple novels in one. That's, it's a love story. It's a war novel. It's an
0: adventure. It's
1: a mystery. It's a treatise on eugenics. And um,
0: which one so of those? Which one of those came first? Was it a, a coming-of-age story first? A war novel first? A eugenics war first? What was the What was the first nugget of the idea? Yeah,
1: certainly not a war novel. I didn't know that I would even introduce the war into the book all I had were the first 50 pages, and so it would be a, I guess a, um, if you look at the beginning, then you have to say it was sort of a college novel that gives uh, hints of a a love story and a a mystery Um, coming of age, uh, I guess sort of. Eugenics, yes, that was the basis of it. Um, I'd I'd have to look, I'd have to go back and look at that first chapter the way it was in 2001 to see if eugenics was mentioned, but I, I do know that I'd gotten the idea of the book, but I hadn't written enough of it to really have it fully formed in my mind. Right. I know that in 2003, I bought a book called War Against the Weak by uh, Edwin Black about eugenics in America, and that influenced, uh, I guess, the direction, but I think I'd already, I'd already decided to write about eugenics, and, me, and his book sort of gave me more information about it. So that's, that's a good question, which came first. I don't know. It just, the, the book was not really fully formed. The first chapter was written, but it's about Julian and his roommate. A couple people go to these sh- the shores, and they end up finding a body in the surf. Right. First chapter, a, a soldier who's not supposed to be there. So, uh, I, I mean, I guess I was just sort of collating ideas, sticking together at the beginning, you know, 19 years ago. So. Sure.
0: So how much, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned the book about the eugenics, how much research went into those different elements in order to sound like, Oh, uh, well, this guy knows what he's talking about, or, or make sure that your characters sounded like they understood what was going on. Is that was there a lot of homework that you had to do, or is this another one of those? No, because I said no. so type things.
1: It's still ideas. There's yeah. still ideas. I mean, I, I do think that some books need research. This didn't really. One of the reasons I was writing the book is because it was a it, because I was just finishing a a novel set in the spring, summer, and fall of 1929 called Crossing Eden, which has been published. But and that required a lot of research. This book I wanted to write a book that didn't require any research where I just make everything up, and that's what I did. So uh, eugenics isn't hard to write about. It's just but but in Edward Black's book, you know, again he, he does mention ideas that I already had, but just. I, I made them, I mean, it, it they built up better uh, after, you know, about feeble-minded, the, uh, sociopathic, the infirm, get rid of all those people. Right. That's, that's, that was easy enough to write. Uh, I just saw, I, I learned, for example, from the book that like, who invented eugenics, the idea of Francis J. Galton in Britain, I've learned about that. I got the expression lethal chambers, which they talked about to get rid of the, the people didn't like, um, I don't. Eugenics didn't really. If you're writing about the history of America, eugenics in Britain and Europe and Germany and in Auschwitz, then yeah, you have to do a lot of research. But this book is not really that. It's the ideas of it that were. Uh, and, and in the in the sequel and companion book to Metropolis, I'm working on right now, Undercity, has much much more about eugenics and the arguments about it than than uh, Metropolis does. So Metropolis is more plot oriented, where where Julian is being carried along in the story.
0: Right. So in in all of this, as you're writing this book and you're publishing it, and it's out there in the world now, was there ever a point uh-huh. where you noticed real life and and the stuff that we've been going through here in the last few years? Was there ever was there any kind of an impact there as far as there are some parallels here that I didn't anticipate. Maybe I should change this. Maybe I should lean into this. Did you make any adjustments because of what was going on in the in the world?
1: Uh, No. Okay. No. So that, but that's a really interesting question because while I was writing the book, of course, I always share my material with friends, and uh, they kept pointing out, but, well, this is just like us, this is like Trump and this and that, and where America could go and whatever. Uh, um. And there are also parallels that I was aware of between Metropolis and uh, Nazi Germany and the war in the Soviet Union. Uh, but I was writing my own book, and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't trying to figure out how there are these parallels between us now. That said, when the book was done, and I'm reading it over again, then I could see what everyone was talking about. But in writing about book, I'm sort of so so focused on where it is, and it's fictional. Um, at least the locations and the events are fictional. Uh, that uh, I, I guess I guess I could see where America could go, or any country in, embracing you know, I mean, eugenics. Yeah. Uh, but but it was more a direct parallel, actually, to uh, uh, Nazi Germany. I mean, when I was talking, I had a friend over here one time. who was telling her about all the people getting killed in the book and everything, and she said that just you- seems excessive. I said, well, okay, but the 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 Nazis killed 25 million people in the Soviet Union, okay, in four years. So that's a pretty good parallel. If yeah. it's as if Julian were a college senior at Heidelberg University in 1943. That's what this would kind of be like. But again, I didn't write the book even holding that in mind. I didn't. I just wrote the book. Yeah. And I wrote it really quickly too. Uh, again I, I wrote about 50 pages in, uh, in you know save probably in 2003 and then uh, I wrote the rest, what six hundred twenty, whatever it was more, in those nine months from from August two thousand nine till maybe April of two thousand twenty. So hmm. yeah, you get sort of involved in the book itself, and, and, and it's not like I'm unaware of what was going on. It's just that the the book was the events. Of the books are so uh, the book are so specific that worrying about you know how things you go in America was was just really a a distant sideshow at the time. Right afterward, yes, I could see
0: it. Now there's sure. a question in the chat. Uh, just to clarify, this book is not connected in any way to the Fritz Lang movie Metropolis from the 1920s. This is this is completely original. It's not an adaptation or anything. No, it's I got
1: asked edition. that. No, no, I got asked uh, that at a uh, uh, book signing up at the Charles M. Schultz Museum on Sunday. If I was if the title was influenced by that, I said no. Uh, any no more is uh, from Superman's Metropolis,
0: right? Right.
1: So that's no. There's no. There's no real connection there. It just. It's just a It's just a name I made up. Metropolis, and um, I think I like calling it Metro I think I like calling it Metropolis. Calling the the city Metropolis better than giving it a name. Most of these utopian dystopian novels have a city and they give a name to it. I just couldn't really. Um, I couldn't really do that. There was a city in. Uh, I think it was in one of the um, Sinclair Lewis's novels, and they call it uh, city. Was called Zenith, you know. I could have done that. I just didn't. I just called it the Metropolis. I don't know. I name everything else. (laughs) The book was funny. I name all the little towns. I name the cars. I name different different. foods and whatever I just, but the central thing I just left is Metropolis. I don't know. Maybe I'm just lazy. I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it because if you, you, you dove into this and just from the, what you've said here, it sounds like you got into the zone and you just wrote this book and, and everything else kind of was out by the wayside and you didn't get distracted by very much that was going on in the world. And you, and you knocked this thing out. Was that was that the process? You just you just dove in and just started going and and didn't stop until you were finished, or did you do this in spurts?
1: No, I wrote. Okay, so first of all, I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have any outline, plot written down, anything. I just made the whole thing up as I was going along. Uh, the book ends where it begins, essentially, yeah. with uh, what that line. Uh, Even now, I dream of the airships emerging from those. Gray clouds at sunset like dark fingers of God on a copper sky above the holy river Lavorna. And so that paragraph that opens the book, I I had, so I knew where the book was going to end. Beyond that, I had no idea. I just made it up. It sounds funny to say, because usually you have to have some idea where you're going. I had no idea where I was going. The book ended up being 668 pages. I thought it'd be about 400. The last part of the book, I thought, ended up being the longest. The book's in four parts. I thought that would be the shortest because I could I, I didn't anticipate what was gonna happen. But I just I seriously I just made it up as I was writing it. It was yeah. pretty amazing because usually you have to usually we have blocks and stuff where you kind of, you have to think about now what am I gonna do. I never had any of that at all. I had one problem where I was trying to figure out why well, I need to do this, new that, what am I gonna do? The ideas were like whispered into my head and solved three problems at once with some part. I just remembered I was like, wow, this right, okay. If I do that, then this is this, this I take care of. Oh, OK, good idea. It's literally like the muses were whispering in my ear for nine months. It was the easiest book to write I've ever had. It just all came to me and all worked out.
0: Now, um, how are you going to teach that? Because you're you're involved with the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and, you know, stream of consciousness with the muses whispering in your ear, I don't know, is a is something that can be taught. How do you yeah. how, how do you translate yeah. that process? What how, what do you what do you tell your students when just, they come up and they said how did you do this so like this and how do you explain it? I mean, what do you tell yeah, them? Yeah, I don't
1: I don't teach plot and story. I teach us voice and style. Okay, that's what that's how I do that. I teach them how to write, how to think about writing something interesting, writing making sentences in a in a in a, in a different way. Right. Choose interesting words. So I read passages from from writers who are writing in lyrical styles or different styles of writing: Truman Capote, to uh, Joan Didion, to you know a variety of different people: uh, Isabel Allende, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, uh, that's what I teach. So style, I mean, story. I don't know. I I don't really think about it. I just uh, I read. Well, okay. One thing is that I I guess what I would do is I tell them two things. My dad said, "There's no such thing as writer's block. Only, or he said, he said only only amateurs get writer's block. Professionals can't afford it. Okay, which is a way. Then, and I say, I say writer's block is just being lazy or being afraid to write something bad. You have to write something. Anything's better than nothing. And then I teach them, and I tell them that you just have to read a lot. You read a lot, and you'll get an idea how to tell stories. And uh, I read both literary fiction and commercial fiction. I just do." Uh, I don't know anybody uh, who reads as widely as I do because they don't. Most people just have a certain kind of books they like, and yeah. like the people who write literary, read literary books. Don't understand why I read Stephen King and John Grisham and you know John Sanford and those people. And the, and the commercial people don't read Paul Bowles or uh, Marquez or Faulkner or any people like they don't read them. They don't want to read those kind of books. So I read both. And I read Fifty Shades of Grey. I read Twilight, and uh, I read this woman uh, Emily Henry. I read one of her books, and this Colleen, I think, whoever their name is, I I read one of her books. I read a lot of. I read uh, a variety of things, and so it teaches me how to maybe tell stories and see how they work. But individually, book to book, no, it's, everything's different anyway. Yeah. So now, um, you yeah. you
0: have you have made the point that on on the commercial side of fiction. You can learn basically plot and structure and story, whereas on the literary side, it's the, it's the style, it's the word usage, it's that kind of thing. And I, I've uh, in the past, I have had the thought that poetry is another place where you can learn, you know the economy of word choice and the kind of words that you have in, in stylistics and, and that kind of thing in order to paint a picture with a limited amount of space. And I think the literary side of fiction probably does that a little bit better than than the commercial side, because commercial side you're you're telling a story that's probably in a franchise or it's a tie-in fiction or something like that. So you have a a particular style that's expected there. Is that is that how you distinguish in your head between the two? Is that is that? Yeah, that's a good.
1: That's that's pretty well said. Uh, I would say that the commercial writers. Or even genre fiction. Let's say, like, like uh, science fiction writers. Mm -hmm. The only real literary science fiction writer that I I, that I really would feel is uh, Ray Bradbury is a poet. And and it's funny because a lot of science fiction writers don't really embrace him as much because he just writes completely differently. He considers himself a poet. Um, But between commercial fiction and literary fiction, there is a huge difference in use of language. They're just and some of my I really like. I really love Lee Child. I like uh, John Sanford. Uh, Another one, sort of a crime going into literary, is James Lee Burke. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you show somebody who is adamant, for example, that commercial writers, their style is just as good as literary, just show them some of the real literary books, and they'll see the difference immediately. There's also an issue of uh, philosophy and interior exploration of interior lives, which just really doesn't happen in commercial fiction at all. And And then, again, you command of language. Um, I liked reading, you know, Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, and you know, I read that uh, novel *Dolgorin*, uh, which is a great book. Um, *American Gods*, but they're just not as good as the literary writers. Right. Uh, um, Roberto Bolaño, the Chilean writer, is just far superior in his use of language and characterizations than than any of the 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 uh, sort of genre writers. Uh, mystery writers, same sort of thing. I really like Michael Connelly. I read all his books. He just doesn't write as well as Paul Bowles. Yeah. He just doesn't.
0: Now, uh, so, do do you find that uh, you have a preference? Uh, I mean, in terms of of one over the other, or you get? I mean, you, it sounds like you get something completely different out of each.
1: Yeah, yeah, I get entertained by the uh, by the crime writers or the uh, science fiction uh, r- writers. Uh, um, yeah, I, I find there, the, the stories really interesting. It's not that the literary ones aren't, it's just that, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Lee Child is really fun to read, so is John Stanford. Um, I read them, I, I save those books and read them on the airplane over to Hawaii, back <laughs> and forth because they're just patrons. Um But but I feel enriched by the uh, literary writers. So when I'm reading Paul Bowles writing about North Africa, Tangier, and the years he spent there, and then reading uh, uh, Roberto, Roberto Milano, or... Uh, or um, uh, another writer from the South who died a few years ago, Larry Brown. I just, just something about the way they write. Or Truman Capote, Joan Didion. Right. They just write better. It just, they just write better. It's simple as that. But, but on the other hand, I don't know. It's like, it's like eating out in super nice restaurants. If you do it every time. It just seems a little. This is too much. Sometimes just want a tuna sandwich. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, or eat at McDonald's or something. I, I don't yeah. know. I. I just, uh, I just, the only thing that irritates me is when people claim that there's no difference, that mm-hmm. their favorite writers, a commercial writer, writes just as well. And then you ask them, well, have you read like Boulogne? Have you read Paul Bowles or read Faulkner? like, well, no, I don't. Know. Okay, all right. You wonder, like, what made Scott Fitzgerald famous? Well, read Tenders the Night. It's just a lot better book, writing-wise. It's just, there's just ways of using language. I feel it has to do with an ear for language and a desire for it. Truman Capote, Truman Capote said once that he said that uh, there are thousands of stories. It's how they're told that distinguishes one from the other. Right. So commercial writers are known for their characters and their and their stories. Literary writers are known for how they write. Right, talk about Hemingway's style or Faulkner's style or Thomas Wolfe. Uh, Joan Diddy has a very specific style. Again, Capote to uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. They're known for how they write, sure. uh, and so that that is sort of the difference. So, but again, I like reading both poetry. That's a good example because you can really, I would say, I would agree with you, economy of style and economy of words. But also, it's the words that are chosen. They're very specific styles. You read Charles Bukowski, and he's a very is uh, a very uh, uh, easily recognizable style of writing and, and attitude. They just write about things, little I- events that um, would never show up. In a commercial novel, uh, likewise, a lot of the literary writers, I read four uh, literary novels by women authors uh, like two years ago, and like nothing happened in the book. They just like they don't feel obligated to have anything happen. Right. Okay, so exploring interior lives, what people are doing during the day, and how the conversations they're having. I was like, okay, but something has to happen. Yeah, they don't yeah. feel like they have to have that novel, um, uh, uh, "The Secret History." Uh, it's like a, it's just as long as as long as metropolis and like nothing happens the whole book. Hmm. So it's, it's the writers she's a really good writer. Um, but yeah. I thought the book was kind of is, it's kind of beautiful, but boring too. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I just don't understand. Uh, I, you have to have something happen. I think yeah. it's I mean, come so, on. Have something happen. So Say like, a character dies, but we yeah. don't see the person die. We hear about it after the fact. That's just not good. You know, show us the scene. Well, I didn't really want to do that. Okay, okay, okay. But, you know, seriously. Yeah,
0: show That's why, I like,
1: I, if you have to ask me, would I choose that book or read, uh, you know, a Jack Reacher novel? I'd rather read Jack Reacher than, <laughs> you know. But but I will say, in most of the literary novels, uh, the best ones, things do happen. They do. So uh, I don't feel I, I lose anything there.
0: So, so. As, so as you're going through and writing Metropolis, did you have any particular target as far as style versus plot story? Was there a conscious effort to, to try to find a balance between the both? Because, you know, stream of, conscien- stream of consciousness type of stuff, usually it's just let's just get it out on paper and then we'll redline it and, and go through and edit later and, and figure things out and do a rewrite and that sort of thing. But was there was there any kind of a choice at any point for you to to lean into literary style with plot or we're going to do more plot heavy with a little flowery word choice? How, how did you decide what this thing was going to feel like?
1: No, every, I think literary writers, I consider myself a literary writer. Um, how we write is how we dress is how we talk is how we eat. Okay. It's all together. What I guess what I'm saying is that because I like, um, literary language, I also like humor Mm -hmm. and I also like having things happen. So it's natural for me. I, I could say maybe in the most mechanistic way, I could say, well, have some narrative, have some dialogue, have something happen. Have some narrative, have some dialogue, have something happen. Okay. I like writing dialogue. A lot of literary writers just don't seem to like writing dialogue. T.C. Boyle opened up one of his books, A Riven Rock, with just pages and pages and pages of narrative without any dialogue. I Sometimes for not only Boyle, but a lot of the writers, I think, I start to suspect they don't like writing dialogue. <laughs> they just like <laughs> narrative. I find if I'm reading a book it's just all narrative, I find it kind of boring. Yeah. No. Um, so, but if it's going to be narrative, then you better have something happen. So, what I, I guess what I'm saying is it's not it's not artificial how I put it together. It's uh, for me, it's very organic. It's just naturally I'm having things happen, and I'm writing a certain way, and I'm having violence in this book, some supreme violence, but I also have a lot of really funny things going on. You know, the way characters talk and and little dialogues and you know snipping sniping at each other and. uh so, um, uh, it's just all together. It's just, you know, what it is again, it's just how I write. Yeah. Uh, it's natural for me to do that. I, I have a friend who was, she said when she, she read the manuscript of Metropolis, she goes, it's, you just have these little, I don't know how you do it. You have all these little, um, uh, uh cliffhangers at the end of every chapter. I go, well, it's <laughs> well, not a mystery. It's just, it's just how I write. It just ha Yeah. It, they hold the reader to go on to the next uh, scene. Right. What's the What's the big deal? <laughs> it's not hard to do. Pacing, not a big deal. Um, I also I write really carefully. Oh, I should tell you my writing schedule for Metropolis because this is how the thing got done. Okay. okay? Yep. What I did was I had written a book in years, really. So, and I didn't think I was going to ever write fiction. Again. I was just doing music all the time, but it doesn't fill out my time. So I had a schedule. My schedule was this. I had to write every morning at least one page before I ate or drank anything. So I would get up. I'm hungry. I start writing. If I write the page really quickly, I could get some to eat. Maybe maybe a couple days I wrote a couple pages, right? Because I was really on flow. Otherwise, I'd be super hungry. And what this means is, let's say the previous page ended four lines by the from the bottom. That means when I'm writing the next one, write through those four lines and then try to get down to four lines. And maybe that's maybe that's like uh, 32 lines, something like that, right? Okay. So I'd be counting lines. I'm really hungry. Uh, how many pages, how many lines do I have? 14. Uh, uh, wow! And I got to get this like 32. Then it's how many? 22. Then it's how many? 27. Oh my God! I'm almost I'm really super hungry now. I got to get this done. <laughs> but I never in nine months I only missed three mornings, and I was out of town at the time. I never I, I wrote on Thanksgiving morning and Christmas morning and New Year's and my birthday. I got that page done. Went in my office, wrote that page. Yeah. And uh, and that's how I got the book done so fast. Uh, I just zoomed through it. And um, so I, it was a steady schedule. I don't write by, some writers will say, well, I sit and I write for three or four hours. I don't work, I write by amounts. I remember one day I wrote six pages, but in general, I was probably writing two or three pages a day. Um, uh, maybe four, something like that. Two or three, four pages a day. But always one or two in the morning before I ate or drank anything. It forced me to get it done. Oh. No writer's block, of course, obviously, uh, but just write, uh, write, 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 write. So zoomed right. along,
0: because,
1: muse-driven.
0: Yes, because writer's block is not allowed. Fake.
1: It's fake. <laughs> okay. It's not real. All this right. is not real. I've heard writers say I was blocked for six months. It's just you were just lazy for six months. Then oh. okay, you're, you know. So I mean, this is my opinion. But dad, sure. but you, you can understand how my dad would say that. Professional oh, sure. rights. And, and whether you're a cartoonist or let's say you're a columnist, you have to have it in. You want to retain it, you want to get paid, you want to have your job. You can't say, oh, I'm blocked. I'm I, I buying six columns back. Okay, you've been replaced. Don't worry about it. Go get blocked elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. No, you have to get it done. So you have to ask yourself for the people who are blocked, how are they reconciling these people who get it done all the time? Well, they go, well, maybe it's not everything they're doing is not that great. Well, okay, but it's in there. They're doing it. Yeah, you know, you just learn to do it. You just you learn to, you learn. I never thought about writer's block because again, dad told me that years ago, and I wouldn't let it happen to me. I just would write. I understood the dynamics of it. Uh, Some days I'm just lazy. I haven't been writing the same way in this new book because I don't feel the urge to necessarily write every single day. But I, I have this book is like I don't know, it's like 360 pages already, so it's not like I'm just screwing off all the time. But but I do recognize. Yeah, I don't know if I really want to write, so I'm kind of lazy. Um, I don't think I'm worried about writing something bad. I think I'm more lazy when I'm not writing. And I think in general, that's probably why we writer's block is probably be a little lazy, but maybe worried about writing bad stuff. I don't know. Bad stuff's better than no stuff, as I said.
0: That's true. All right. Speaking yeah. of your dad, I want to talk a little bit about that when we get back. We're going to take a real short, quick break so I can tell Google where to interrupt us, and we will be right back more with Monty Schultz right after this, stand by. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Until you unsubscribe in a sudden but inevitable betrayal. I find it difficult to get excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's my natural cynicism or my 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 cynicism. pessimism. tempered with uh, 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 a dash. I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm jaded at this point. The H2O podcast, only on Sci Fi for Me TV.
1: Good morning, Multiverse. Saturday morning at 11 10 Central, only
0: on Sci Fi for Me TV. Helps to turn the volume back up. All right, back live from the bunker. We are talking with Monty Schultz about his book *Metropolis* and his writing process. And if the name, if the last name sounds familiar, and I, I noted that I am wearing uh, my Snoopy shirt today in honor of same. Uh, Monty's dad was uh, the late great Charles M. Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. And Monty, I want to ask because you know a lot of people talk about you know what kind of influence that he had on uh, a lot of things I mean peanuts is uh, you know well it's peanuts it's iconic how much did the two of you talk about the writing process in general you you talk about how he's talking about you know there's there's no such thing as writer's block But as far as the actual process of writing something, of creating something, what did y'all discuss?
1: Uh, We actually just discussed books and reading. And uh, when I was younger, before I I was reading books, he uh, initially, we watched TV shows together like uh, W.C. Fields and uh, maybe, you know, Abbott Costello, watched those movies. And then he had me read the Tintin books, right? Those uh, adventure books with the... Tintin and snowy and uh captain haddock and uh which got me the idea of you know writing adventure and having funny things and things happen and whatever uh so and then when i got older to a certain point i started when he saw first i was writing music he saw
0: yep he's frozen again Money, are you there
1: gee like my luck and so do I. And then, but he also had me read what hit dad liked with these passages, literary passages from from Thomas Wolfe, uh, uh, You Can't Go Home Again or Comrade Angel of Time in the River, right. and uh, from, um, let's say, the tortoise crossing the road scene in um, The Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck. Uh, so that's what we talked about. And then as I got older and I started reading uh, more, then we started being able to share books. Um, he was glad when I. Uh, he said he'd wait, he was waiting my whole life to where he could talk to his son about books <laughs> and, and share books. So we started talking about James Lee Burke and uh, Cormac McCarthy. And, and again, he showed his... He, I remember he didn't talk about Carson McCullers that much, but she became one of my favorite writers and Truman Capote, of course. So uh, um, that's what... Would, but the process of writing... No, but he, he did... Um, he would ask... It was, sometimes he'd have a book come out where he had to write some prose explaining something you know maybe two or three paragraphs of letter he found it agonizing because i don't understand how you can write all these words i just find it really hard yeah cuz i said cuz you just write in those four panels all the time yeah um so he he appreciated what i what what i could write um he liked what i he liked how i wrote
0: so he never so that was gratifying. he never had any interest any impulse in doing prose fiction at any point did did he ever think about doing nope. any of that
1: No, no, he did what he could do.
0: Yeah,
1: like I can't draw, so uh, but I can write long form fiction. I can write music. Dad can draw and he can write short, short uh, uh, prose. So there's a difference. So now he's got a son who can do the things that he can't do. So I feel like our, where he alive now and see me publish all these books. He saw me publish down by the river the first one, but and he read the manuscript. He read some of it of uh, Crossing Eden but he didn't get to see that finished nor anything else I, I, I've written subsequently. Yeah. And I've read many more books, too. Uh, uh, I've read a lot of his books that he had in his library. Uh, he really was an admirer of James Gold Cousins, who wrote uh, The Just and the Unjust and By Love Possessed, and uh, the writer John Mark Bond. I read his James Jones novels, um, From Here to Eternity and The Thin Red Line and uh, Norman Mailer's uh, The Naked of the Dead, books like that. Um, so... Uh, we would have a better conversation now than we did when he was alive, and I was a less evolved writer.
0: It seems like though a lot of a lot of the peanut strips uh, were more sophisticated than people may have realized in, in the kind of ideas that were there in the times, and it and it kind of feels like just from what you're talking about the conversations that y'all had, it feels like maybe the things that he read probably kind of filtered into the various different conversations that the Penix gang had, because the Penix gang always felt like they were older than they actually were. And I think that's probably maybe that influence of everything that your dad was reading through the years.
1: Right. But that was also how he chose to do the strip. Initially, the resistance he got in trying to sell the strip was uh, editors feel Feeling that it was disconcerting to see little kids speaking like adults, yeah, they didn't uh, feel that that was appropriate. Uh, So his strip was sort of groundbreaking at the time, but it was, it was sort of his voice. It's like you asking me how I form my fiction. Uh, That's how he wrote. That's how he saw. He read. He read and had his. uh, I don't think it was. I don't think it was. uh, I was deliberate. And actually, if you read the first couple books you know peanuts more peanuts good grief more peanuts you see there's still kids i suppose they have some philosophical things but i think he also i think he also said that um you know kids don't just it's not just blah 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 you know they do have ideas you can have conversations with kids and they do talk about ideas to a certain extent and as the strip became more sophisticated uh well let's just say as he wrote on um he explored more philosophical topics. Like the one I was, I was telling a friend the other day is how dad said the ideal is to have um, a lake and a convertible. The secret to life is a lake and a convertible. <laughs> if it's sunny out, you drive your convertible. If it rains, you're it's filling your lake. Yeah. Okay, so you have it both ways. Yeah.
0: Now yeah. is is there is there any point in this because there are there are some things in the peanut strip that probably wouldn't get published today. Uh, just modern modern era uh, situations and, and discussions and attitudes and, and that sort of thing. Have you ever run across with your writing any concerns about, oh, I probably shouldn't write this. Maybe I'm not the right person to write this. Is that, has that ever come up, come up in conversations with editors or anything? Have you ever had to worry about that?
1: No, uh, my editor Gary Groth at Fantagraphics is a very outspoken, philosophical curmudgeon himself. <laughs> you know, running uh, contrary to the uh, to the uh, let's say the public wheel, and he doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> so it was controversial. He likes it a lot. Um, but I would I would say I don't know what like what kind of things do you think would Dad would have time uh, well, trouble?
0: I think because I've seen discussion because right now we're in the midst of you know, uh, Ian Fleming and Agatha Christie and Roald Dahl all of these all of these authors getting rewritten for the modern times, sens- yeah. sensitivity edits and whatnot, and your uh, you know your dad's uh, Christmas Charlie Brown story centers around you know the birth of Christ and I'm like well that that probably wouldn't fly these days. There would probably be all sorts of people that would be offended by that.
1: Well, if you're lucky, you're offending people, I guess. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> right. uh, uh,
0: I think the idea of
1: rewriting these books is, is preposterous. Uh, because for one thing, what they do is they become um, exemplars of a certain time. And uh, period. I think you know, a good example is uh, uh, when Norman Lear talked about All in the Family, he had one interesting comment about it. He says, as it turns out, all of the family was not at all influential in TV. There was nothing like it beforehand and nothing like it since. Yeah. And and so here's a show that comes on at a time when America was still pretty conservative, right? And suddenly all the families on the way they talked and talking about race, talking about religion, talking about all these social issues and other thing, contrary to the public wheel, right? Yeah. Um, you could easily make the case that all the family would never be allowed on TV now, which is an interesting thing to to say, and it's probably true, but uh, I don't think, like you use the word, like in the modern time, I think it's circumstantial. I think it's at a certain window in time people feel a certain way to do this. I don't know that it would continue. I think it's very likely 30 years from now people will look back at people rewriting these, editing these books and think how absurd it is. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe 50 years from now, they'll think, "Well, this is a stupid thing to do. Who whose idea was that? Right. How is that helping anybody?" Uh, and if you do that, um, you know, then you got to look at the language uh, Mark Twain uses in describing uh, blacks during uh, in, in Huckleberry Finn. Why do they say that? You right. know, uh, well, okay. Well, should we change that? No, you shouldn't change it. It's an example of the period because otherwise, you're going to look at um, everything that way and what's going to happen is you're going to realize how many things that you think are okay that are not right so uh it's like like look how long it took them to get some of these the the sports teams names changed and atlanta braves are still not changed da, 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 da. the top. Yep. right you know, oh that's not racist at all no that's just supporting the team well okay it is but it's also racist but yeah but we don't care about that you know so uh um, you know, you're not going to have the Nashville Cannibals, okay? So that's not going to happen. Or you're not going to have the uh, San Antonio bandidos, you know? Yeah. Or maybe you would. I don't know. It depends how people are feeling about certain minorities at the time. Some people just don't
0: care. But so let I me let me ask you this, Omani, because the people, the people, gen- and this I'm I'm painting with a broad brush. This is a general, a sweeping generalization. The right. people, the people that have the most problem with the the, the name of the Atlanta Braves, for example. Are yeah. the same people that are rewriting Roald Dahl and Agatha Christie? It's that, know, same, it's I, that same that same mentality, and and none of it makes sense.
1: Well, um, I would say it's more the people. It's probably both sides because I think the people who were editing Raul Dahl don't uh, don't mind the Land of Braves. They just don't care about that. You know, they people choose their issues. You know, you know, so when we talk about um, uh, race in America, usually black and white, we don't really care about Asians that much, right? I mean, just, Americans just don't feel that way. It's really kind of funny, you know? Um, yet at the same time, um, who talks about... Uh, oh, here was a good one. So at Standing Rock, mm-hmm. right, with a the protest there, it was going on, I think, it was, I don't know, I remember how long it was, like three years ago or something like that, and I noticed... That because I was interested about it, the protest standing rock on on, on Indian land, yeah. And um, it turns out I look at the news feeds on Apple News, I'm looking at CNN, WN, and nothing, no, no news organization was covering that. In fact, somebody from the BBC landed there and said, Where are all your reporters? None, Mm. a complete Chinese style, whatever you know, um, news blackout, yeah. Of standing rock so it just shows that some issues people americans go whoa i can't believe we're doing this and others are just as bad look at look they sent all those uh, news people up to that guy occupying this guy's occupying the what the ranger station in oregon or wherever it was right but they don't send anything to because because there's certain things in america we cover and others we just don't yeah we, yeah. we just don't it's almost like uh, you know seeing which way the wind blows and which is going to be something we're interested in covering um, so it's just, I don't, it's, look, I guess we could say with a capital H, hypocrisy reigns in America all over, right? It just does. Um, and that's, that's the biggest problem, they're just hypocritical about things.
0: Now, do you, so, find, do you find that you um, not necessarily need to address this kind of thing in your writing? Have you ever sat there and said, I need the subtext, there's got to be a message here. Have you ever leaned into that aspect? of storytelling so much, or is it just, I'm just going to entertain and let other people get the message everywhere else.
1: No, no, I don't know. No. I mean, uh, the, the lessons in, uh, in Metropolis. And then again, it's the sequel here under city are very, uh, very strongly worded. Yeah. They are, they're evident. They are admonishments. They're warnings about what can happen, how people actually feel about each other. um, so uh, I was watching a documentary on uh, YouTube uh, the other day uh, uh, on on Nuremberg and the and the first Soviet films that came. They were the Soviets, the Red Army arrived at the at the uh, at the concentration camps before the the Allies from the West did, right? So Maj- Majdanek was the first one they saw, and they said the Soviet soldiers were so horrified and, and nauseated they'd seen terrible things in the Soviet Union, right? Yeah. But when they saw Majdanek and they saw the bodies. And seeing how some were dismembered to fit better into the ovens, to, they were just shocked. And so, some people don't want to read that or see the films like that. But, but that sort of informs it, and that the kind of thing would, was informing what I wrote in, um, in Metropolis and what I'm writing in, in Undercity. And uh, but you know, racial issues. I have racial issues in um, and religion in part of uh, Crossing Eden. It wasn't so much that I'm thinking I should write about that. It's just that that in the context of where I was writing, that that's what arose. Um, so I, I can only say, I hate using the word organic, but it's very organic in that way. It's what I write is going to talk about. It. I don't, I don't, uh, otherwise the book, uh, a novel becomes a polemic, yeah. right? It, it's not, it's not really not. Uh, Capote thought that Camus novels were more, were more po- polemics than the than, than novels. Um, so I didn't want to do that. But uh, I also don't follow what you're saying about in um, you know, Is it just story and entertaining, which should be entertaining, but it it should be a story too? Well,
0: as as far as that, let me let me clarify the question. There, because there are some there are some authors modern day nowadays who are criticized for putting the message first before the story, as opposed to we need to be able to tell a story that people can enjoy or they get something out of it. And if the message is there subtextually, they they see it or they don't as as they're sensitive to it. Uh, I guess it's more of a question of what what the priority is in in the process for the writer.
1: I don't think I agree with you that there are probably writers who put it up front, and then it seems clunky, yeah. right? Then it seems uh, it makes it seem like a polemic. Um, a novel where that addressed these maybe may balanced them very well was uh, a To Kill a Mockingbird. Right, yeah. so it's a, a novel. It's interesting. It's a common, multiple things happening in this book. Right, yeah. the young girl and her story, and uh, and her, and her friends, and then uh, also uh, the the issues of race and her father in the trial, and, and all of that. Um, uh, Boo Radley, uh, how people are treated who are not you know mainstream citizens. There in the store, the story itself reveals it. It's not even subtext. It's there. It's just you're also you're also telling a story that is, is supposed to be entertaining as well, yeah. right? And it's yeah. not, I, I think there, it's like, look, it's like an ingredients to a, 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 a dinner you're making. It's all supposed to fit together. You're aware of it. It's not hidden. It's there. All right. But it's not just, uh, you know, throwing pepper in somebody's face and saying, do you like pepper, okay? So Or pepper's bad. Too much pepper's bad for you, okay? <laughs> you don't really do it like that. I think if you write the novel... Um, and okay, for instance, eugenics is really big in Metropolis. But my publisher, I asked Gary Groth, he finished the book. I said, So, so what do you think of eugenics? He goes, Well, does not really think about what you're writing. It seems to be really in the background. I said, Gary, it's not really in the background. It's up front. <laughs> it's just that I guess that I, I, I entertain with Julian's story well enough that you become sort of unaware that it's in the background. Yeah. Right. But it is, it's the whole point of the book is eugenics. But it's also Julian growing up and Julian falling in love, and and Julian's uh, a girlfriend taking care of her sister, and Julian's love of his parents and family, and and his roommate struggles. If if you write a book with a lot of things happening at once, you could see though you can see how it all balances together. Yeah. Um, so so I guess we can say perhaps that the uh, the book the the books you're describing where it's just like hammering the deal up the, the issue up front, maybe they're just not. They're just not that good. The books are not that good. The writers are not that good. Um, and, and, then, and then the ones who um, who are not putting that stuff in are just more interested in entertaining. Yep. Okay, that's fine. That's those books. Yep. Everybody, not every book can be the same. And-, and they shouldn't be. As I said, I like reading a lot of different kinds of things. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I want to read two of the same book. Twilight was okay. I just didn't want to read another one. But I liked it. I liked it enough. Isn't it the worst book ever? Like Fifty Shades of Grey, wasn't it the worst book ever? Mm, No. (laughs) I liked it enough. I just didn't want to read another one. I sort of got the idea. Um, Yeah.
0: So your book, Metropolis, is out now. It's been out since August, and you're currently working on the sequel. Yep. And uh, for anybody who is interested in Monty's work and following him, there there is a, a website for him, MontySchultzAuthor.com. We've got all of these links in our notes for people to find. Uh, Monty is also on Twitter, and we have the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. You're still involved in this, is that right?
1: Yeah, I own it, and I teach a workshop there okay. uh, on voice and style. All yep. right,
0: and one thing we did not talk about much is your music And there's a website here for for Monty's Music, Seraphonium. So we've got uh, links to all of these. And you're currently working on the sequel to Metropolis. Is there anything else that you're working on at this point?
1: Well, I'm finishing, theoretically, trying to finish the third (laughs) CD. Uh, Getting the musicians together is like, as they say, herding cats. (laughs) It's complicated. (laughs) And finding singers. I sing on some songs. Not all of them. I I just, uh, I made a recording of one of my songs and talking to the engineer, I'm, singing, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know if I want to sing that song. He's just, he sent me the recording I thought, it's not that good. My vocals are good enough, so I don't know. Maybe I'll have someone else sing or I'll just improve the vocal. I don't know. So, but I, okay. And so Undercity, the sequel is more like, I was thinking about this. It's it's sort of a sequel, but it's more, it's almost more a companion piece to it. Because mm-hmm. I got asked, so would it matter which you read first? Uh... Kind of, kind of not. You know, uh, you, you'll know what happened in the first book. It's more like where it begins, but I'm not sure that it's. I don't. I don't know that it. It gives away a lot from Metropolis if you read Undercity first. Undercity though tells a lot more about eugenics, a lot more about the Republic and the Metropolis itself. What life is like. What it has is it has one plot line, and then it's got like. It'll have like 28, 29 vignettes, different people talking. I finished one called The Cleric. You know, I'll have the, the gypsy, the policeman. The what? They're all telling their stories. Yeah. There's some short, some long. So it's just, it's more, I guess more, it's
0: sequel slash companion piece.
1: Yeah. Different uh-huh. fun book. It's not going to be as long as Metropolis. Uh, I can control the length better in this book. Okay.
0: Okay. All right, and we do have a copy of the book. I'm I've got it in my review pile, so as soon as I can I can read it and and do the review, we will post that, and uh, we will await the sequel. And uh, once that comes out, we will have Monty back to talk about that and other things. We'll uh, have some discussions about writing. Monty, thank you very much for being here, sir. I do appreciate it. Yes.
1: Thank you. It was really fun. All right, Very glad, fun.
0: glad we were able to get the time and, and get this thing yeah. scheduled and do all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. thanks to all of you in the chat, everybody who is here live. If you're not here live, remember, you can leave a comment and you can still share your thoughts. And if you want to suggest a topic or uh, uh, a guest, then uh, you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me dot com tomorrow. We're going to go ahead and do tomorrow. We're going to do open line Friday tomorrow. Uh, So join us for that. And, of course, all of the different social medias where you can find us, the different video platforms, the Discord server, all these links are in the notes, uh, so you can find it there. And that's going to do it for us. I will leave you with this thought. There is no more destructive lie than the one that you tell yourself. So be careful about that. And remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of SciFi4Me.com. Copyright 2023 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to scifi For me Radio.